Hello to all of my fellow mystery fiction loving fans, and welcome to the first of what I hope will be many, many, many Whodunitville podcasts. I'm your host, Tracy Roberts, and I'll be your guide through the dark, strange, mysterious, and maybe cozy universe of mystery fiction. Let's begin this program with some news, shall we? This news has been out for a couple of weeks, but it's still noteworthy. The Mystery Writers of America have released its annual list of nominees for the Edgar Allan Poe Awards, honoring the best in mystery fiction, nonfiction, and television published or produced in 2019. The awards will be presented to the winners at the 74th Gala Banquet, April 30, 2020, at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in New York City. The organization, the Mystery Writers of America, will also be celebrating the 211th anniversary of the birth of Edgar Allan Poe. Here are some of the nominees. For Best Novel, Fake Like Me by Barbara Borland. The Stranger Diaries by Ellie Griffiths. The River by Peter Heller. Smoke and Ashes by Abir Mukherjee. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Good Girl, Bad Girl by Michael Robotham. For Best First Novel by an American Author. My Lovely Wife by Samantha Downing. Miracle Creek by Angie Kim. The Good Detective by John McMahon. The Secrets We Kept by Laura Prescott. Three-Fifths by John Vercher. And American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson. For Best Paperback Original, the nominees were Dread of Winter by Susan Alice Bickford. Freedom Road by William Lashner. Blood Relations by Jonathan Moore. February Sun by Alan Parks. The Hotel Never Sink by Adam O'Fallon Price. And The Bird Boys by Lisa Sandler. For Best Short Story, Touristas from Pac Tulosipas by Hector Acosta. One of These Nights from Cutting Edge, New Stories of Mystery and Crime by Women Writers by Olivia Llewellyn. The Passenger from Sydney Noir by, by Kirsten Tranter. Home at Last from Die Behind the Wheel, crime fiction inspired by the music of Steely Dan by Sam Weeb. Brothers Keeper from Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine by Dave Zeltzerman. For Best Juvenile, The Collected Works of Gretchen Oyster by Carrie Fagan. Eventown by Corey Ann Haydew. The Whispers by Greg Howard. All the Grays on Green Street by Laura Tucker. Me and Sam Sam Handle the Apocalypse by Susan Vaught. For Best Young Adult, Catfishing on Catnet by Naomi Kritzer. Killing November by Adriana Mather. Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Rebay. The Deceivers by Kristen Simmons. Wild and Crooked by Leah Thomas. For Best Television Episode Teleplay, Season 5, Episode 3, Line of Duty, Teleplay by Jen Mercurio. Also, Season 5, Episode 4 of Line of Duty, Teleplay by Jed Mercurio. For those of you who may not know, the TV series Line of Duty follows the character D.S. Steve Arnott, an authorized firearms officer who is transferred to the Anti-Corruption Unit 12 after refusing to cover up an unlawful shooting by members of his own team. 
The next, episode, the next episode nominated is Episode 1, Dublin Murders, teleplay by Sarah Phelps. The Dublin Murders is a TV series created by Sarah Phelps based on the first two Dublin Murder Squad books by Tana French. Episode 1, Manhunt, was nominated, teleplay by Ed Whitmore. Manhunt is a British drama based on a true story surrounding the investigation into the death of French student Amélie de la Grange, who was visiting the UK on August 19, 2004. Also nominated was Episode 1, Wisting, by Catherine Valen Ziner and Tri Alistair Deason. Wisting is a Norwegian police procedural series that follows character William Wisting, a senior police detective. Nominated for the Robert L. Fish Memorial Award, there's a riot going on from Milwaukee Noir by Derek Harriel. Robert L. Fish was an American writer of crime fiction who lived from August 21, 1912 until February 23, 1981. In 1962, he won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best First Novel for The Fugitive, and in 1972 won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best Short Story, Moonlight Gardener. The Robert L. Fish Memorial Award is sponsored by the author's estate and is awarded to the best first short story by an American author. For the G.P. Putnam's son, Sue Grafton Memorial Award. Shamed by Linda Castillo. Borrowed Time by Tracy Clark. The Missing Ones by Edwin Hill. The Setupur Moonstone by Sujata Massey. The Alchemist's Illusion by G.G. Pandian and Girl Gone Missing by Marcy R. Grandin. For the Simon Schuster Mary Higgins Clark Award, The Night Visitors by Carol Goodman, One Night Gone by Tara Laskowski, Strangers at the Gate by Catriona McPherson, Where the Missing Go by Emma Rowley, and The Murder List by Hank Philippi Ryan. Mary, Mary Higgins Clark, of course, world-renowned author who recently passed away on January 31st, 2020, at the age of 92. Stay, stay tuned to the Houdinaville podcast because we will definitely be devoting an author biography to, author biography to Mary Higgins Clark in the very near future. I can, I can guarantee it. But... Right now, I'd love to hear what you think of this list and of the nominees. Is there anyone you think should be nominated that wasn't? Who do you think the favorites are to win in each category? Feel free to send me an email at whodunitville at gmail.com telling me what you think. Now, before I started on another list, this one concerning new releases for February, uh, let me take this opportunity to discuss Edgar Allan Poe. In particular, his character, C. Auguste Dupin, who made his first appearance in Poe's The Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1841. It's a story considered by many to be the first detective story, although some may argue that the next closest example in fiction may be Voltaire's Zadig, Z-A-D-I-G, in 1748, in which the main character in that story also performs examples of analysis and deductive reasoning but that's another topic for another episode. Here's a few passages from Murders in the Rue Morgue. I'll just read you just a short little piece. 
Residing in Paris during the spring and part of the summer in 18, I there became acquainted with a Monsieur C. Auguste Dupin. This young gentleman was of an excellent, indeed of an illustrious family, but by a variety of untoward events had been reduced to such poverty that the energy of his character succumbed beneath it, and he ceased to bestir himself in the world or to care for the retrieval of his fortunes. By courtesy of his creditors, there still remained in his possession a small remnant of his patrimony, and upon the income arising from this, he managed by means of a rigorous economy to procure the necessities of life without troubling himself about its superfluities. Books, indeed, were his sole luxuries, and in Paris, these are easily obtained. Uh, Dupin is not a professional detective, a term which hadn't even been coined in 1841. Dupin employs the method of reasoning Poe termed ratiocination, by which Dupin combines his intellect with creative imagination, putting himself in the mind of the criminal, thereby knowing everything that the criminal knows so he can solve any crime. Uh, it's, a, it's a method many fictional detectives after Dupin have employed in their stories, along with his idiosyncratic way of paying extra attention to another character's unintended actions. Things like noticing slight hesitations, noticing an eagerness of the characters to help, or the casual inadvertent word which comes to bite them in the end. If you go back and examine the three stories Dupin appeared in, Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Mystery of Marie Roget, and The Purloined Letter, you'll see just how influential Poe's character was. There's an eccentric but brilliant mystery solver, the ineffectual police presence, even the first-person narration by a close colleague. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, once wrote, Each of Poe's detective stories is a route from which a whole literature has developed. Where was the detective story until Poe breathed a breath of life into it? He says this, but Doyle in later years kind of contradicts this high praise when, in A Study in Scarlet in 1887, he has Dr. Watson compare Holmes to Dupin, and Holmes completely disregards this by saying, No doubt you think you are complimenting me. In my opinion, Dupin was a very inferior fellow. Maybe this was just Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's version of throwing some shade on another author's crime solver. Who knows? The character of C. Augusta Penn, who some have categorized as the dehumanized thinking machine, a man whose sole interest is pure logic, has appeared in several times since Poe's creation of him. The pen appeared in the Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine in the 1960s, he appeared in juvenile novels like The Man Who Was Poe by Avi. Uh, more recently, in 2005, Dupin uh, teamed with the Count of Monte Cristo in the story The Kind-Hearted Torturer by John Hill. In 2006, in the novel The Post Shadow by Matthew Pearl. And in 2007, in Edgar Allan Poe on Mars by Jean-Marc L'Officier and Randy L'Officier. Uh, the character of Dupin is also crossed over to the comic book universe. He appears in Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, in the Japanese manga Detective Conan by Gosho Aoyama, and in Batman Confidential, although Dupin doesn't physically appear, we find out that for a time the Batcomputer was nicknamed Dupin.
If you're looking for brand new, hot off the presses mystery suspense titles, here are some of February's new releases on Amazon. Golden and Death, an Eve Dallas novel by J.D. Robb. The Museum of Desire by Alex Delaware. The Life That Mattered by Jewel E. Ann. The Girl in the Manor by A.J. AJ Rivers. That's an Emma Griffin FBI mystery. Also an Emma Griffin FBI mystery. The Girl That Vanished by A.J. Rivers. The Princess of Chaos by Candace Wright. Crooked River by Douglas Preston. And The Name of the Dead, The Names of the Dead by Kevin Wignall. It's at this point in the podcast when I'll probably be reviewing a mystery TV show or movie. I thought for the first episode I'd go back to the roots of my long fascination with mystery and begin with the mystery cartoons I watched as a kid, specifically the Hanna-Barbera mystery cartoons. In doing my research for this podcast, I discovered that there were actually more than I remembered. There was, of course, Scooby-Doo, but also The Funky Phantom in 1971, The Amazing Chan and the Chan Clan in 1972, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids, 1973, Goober and the Ghost Chasers, 1973, Clue Club, 1976, Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels, 1977, and The Buford Files in 1979. But it all started with Scooby-Doo in 1969. And Scooby-Doo began with an outcry by organizations such as Action for Children's Television and the National Parent Teachers Association, demanding the government do something about the perceived violence on children's TV programming. 1968 saw the airing on TV for the first time of major news events like the Vietnam War, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, civil rights, protests and counterculture protests, all of which triggered obvious debate over violence in the media and especially in children's television, a reaction some some sociologists have gone on to call moral panic. I suppose I can understand where they were coming from. I mean, with so much violence and fear in the real world right outside their front door, why expose children to more of it than they really have to? Uh, This, however, went against the network's current ratings theory in 1968, which proved correct, by the way, that the more horror, the higher the Saturday morning ratings. In fact, it wasn't until the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy in June 1968 that major change in children's television started. Kennedy, father of 11, was a great champion of children's causes, including the reformation of Saturday morning TV alongside the FCC. Just hours after Kennedy was shot, President Lyndon B. Johnson announced the creation of a National Commission on the Causes and Prevention of Violence, and so the pursuit of nonviolent children's television became something of a tribute to Kennedy. So out were cartoons like Space Ghost, Birdman, and The New Adventures of Superman from Filmation that featured nonstop action with heroes desperately trying to defeat, even kill, a menace or, quote, unquote, real monster. And in their place was Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? A cartoon that still appealed to the much sought after demographic of older children with its action and adventure, 
but the characters of Fred, Daphne, Velma, Shaggy, and Scooby were never in any real danger or faced serious jeopardy. They're just a gang of kids solving mysteries, and the monsters were always just easily defeated humans in disguise. The franchise of Scooby-Doo turned 50 last year, so there was a lot written about it. One article I thought might be fun to discuss I found on mentalfloss.com, which lists all the Scooby-Doo fan theories. One theory says that Scooby is a Soviet space dog. This is partially based on the USSR and American space race in the late 60s, where Russia launched uh, its first canine cosmonaut Laika into space. It goes on to theorize that Scooby is a runaway from the Soviet space dog program, and that he was designed to breed pups capable of operating satellites, understand radio commands, and even imitate human speech. Apparently Scooby and a Russian scientist escaped to the U.S., but the scientist died somehow, and Scooby was found and adopted by a group of friendly teenagers. The next theory is that the show takes place during an economic depression because of all the abandoned theme parks, museums, and towns the gang always find themselves in, not to mention all the crazy people dressing up like monsters just to get their hands on some money. I can see that. That's, that's a little bit more plausible. The, we've gone through some hard economic depressions, and I could see that happening. How about this one? The Scooby Gang are all draft dodgers. Since it premiered in 1969 during the Vietnam War, and since Fred and Shaggy appeared to be able-bodied men over 18, they would have been eligible for the draft. Are they 18, though? I don't think their ages were ever very clear. I always thought they were just seniors in high school. Okay, the next one is, how about Shaggy is Captain America's son? You'll have to stay with me on this one. First, they both have the same last name, Rogers, as in Norval Shaggy Rogers and Steve Rogers. Also, in Captain America the Winter Soldier, Falcon says that Cap can run 13 miles in half an hour. That's roughly 26 miles per hour. And Shaggy can always keep up with a running scared Scooby, a dog based on Great Danes who can run up to 30 miles per hour. I want to know what you think about these theories. Do you have any of your own? You can email me anytime at whodoneitville at gmail.com. Send me any comments or questions you might have about anything covered on the show. Again, that's whodoneitville at gmail.com. W-H-O-D-U-N-N-I-T-V-I-L-L-E at gmail.com. Whodoneitville at gmail.com. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening. And until the next podcast, remember, it's the mysteries in life that make it more fun. See you next time.